Yakima, California. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a burglary detail. In the past two months, a thief has broken into 18 markets. There's no lead to his whereabouts. Good morning, Petaluma. You are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted on KPCA LP Petaluma, California. I'm Rabbi Ted Feldman. I am the rabbi at B'nai Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma and the chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council. We meet every two weeks on the radio here to have conversations with uh, individuals in our community who are touching people's lives in various ways. And today, our first segment, we have in our studio Michael Shapiro, who when I looked at my calendar, um, he was on the program last year on November 8th, 2018. So in scheduling today, we didn't realize we'd have an anniversary celebration today, but that's good. Uh, the first guest here uh, to return the oh. second time. Wow. Hey, this is good. You could start a, a tradition here. Yeah. We like tradition in our, our, our faith. We do like tradition yeah. in our faith. Well, welcome to the studio. Thank and, you, Ted. Uh, having you here today uh, is actually in celebration of uh, the publication of your new book, I'll show our audience. It's right here. <laughs> Everybody see it? Uh, it's called The Creative Spark, and it's how musicians, writers, explorers, and other artists found their inner fire and followed their dreams. So in the next 25 minutes, we're going to find out how this all works and what you discovered in your journey putting this book together. First of all, uh, since, tell us a little bit about your background for those who don't remember sure. your interview from a year ago, and then sure. we can move on into the discussion. Well, I'm a journalist. I started out in news and investigative reporting, working for newspapers around the Bay Area. Uh, I still contribute to newspapers as well as national magazines. Locally, I write for the Press Democrat in Santa Rosa and the San Francisco Chronicle. And then my career took a series of turns. Uh, I got very involved in travel writing for a while, and I still do some travel writing. And more recently, I've done a lot of entertainment writing. A lot of my um, music articles, uh, book event previews, etc., have appeared in the Press Democrat and other local newspapers. And through that, I realized I had all these incredible interviews with people like Smokey Robinson and Lucinda Williams, Lyle Lovett, and you know authors like Barbara Kingsolver. And I, I went back. It was just kind of a weekend project. And I went back and I said... I'm going to review, you know, really a decade or more worth of, of material uh, in terms of interviews that I've done. And some of it was farther afield, like I had the opportunity to interview Jane Goodall. And I found a central theme. Before I realized what I was even looking for, I was like, the central theme is creativity. And that's what all these people have in common, is they really are creative. They do things and put themselves in positions where they can be creative. Uh, they nurture their creativity. And... It really is this passion to create, to make things that matter, that motivates so many of these people. Would you admit to your own creativity in creating sure. this book? I mean, writing is a right. creative act. Um, right. And, uh, you know, I had a friend of mine who said, well, I'm really most interested in the introduction because that's what you wrote. And I said, well, yeah, I wrote the introduction, but every single chapter has three or four pages of introduction, biographical sketches of these people of a thousand words or so, so you get a sense, and then it segues into question and answer, so you get to see their words in an unfiltered way. But I think 
also interviewing is an art, and there's a lot of creativity involved in interviewing because certainly you have to prepare to be a good interviewer, but you also have to be spontaneous and highly present. You have to be in the moment. You have to be in that flow and really awake to kind of go where the interview wants to go, not to be rigid about this, this is my list of questions and I was preparing to ask this, but sometimes interviews take surprising turns and if you're alert enough to, to kind of, it's, it's a very delicate balance because you, you want to be open and you want to let things go where they want to go, but at the same time, you have to kind of make sure the interview stays on track. So those are two uh, competing things sometimes, but it's, it's, it's really fun to to go and, and ask somebody, uh, for example, Barbara Kingsolver said, oh, I've never been asked that before. That's such a great question. And the question was, uh, what, what in this book is a challenge that you never took on before? And she had a great answer about what that challenge was. And then she said, you know what? In every single book I've done, there's been a challenge that I've given myself that I've never taken on before. She said, I could look at all 14 of my books and tell you specifically what that challenge is and she said, that's why I never want to do a sequel. That's why even when people write to me and said, oh, I love the characters from the bean trees. Would you, would you do a sequel to the bean trees or to animal dreams or something like that? She said, that's the last thing I want to do. I want to, I want to challenge myself in new ways. So I think that was a central theme, whether it was an author or a musician or uh, some other kind of artist. There are a couple of chefs in the book. Uh, as I mentioned, there are a couple of explorers. Jane Goodall's in there. So, And they've all created their lives in very... Um, unusual and gratifying ways. I was just thinking when you mentioned Barbara Kingsolver's notion of sequels, mm-hmm. there are some writers who only create sequels. Right. And that would be an interesting question. Have you considered what do you see as your challenge in, in writing the sequels to this? Yeah. And that, the fact that there are some who do and some who don't, that's already a sign of the differences of creativity inside of people and the decisions that they're making. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even in nonfiction, Bill Bryson's not in the book. He was in my previous book, A Sense of Place, which is a travel writer's book. But um, he wrote a phenomenally successful book called The Walk in the Woods about hiking the Appalachian Trail, or at least part of it. Um, And then his publishers wanted him to do a similar book on the Pacific Crest Trail. And he said, I've done my hiking book. You know, I don't have any interest in doing another hiking book. He didn't say he did his hiking. He just did his <coughs> hiking book. But yes, Right. Well, right. about a third of the way up the Appalachian Trail, he was like, I think we're done here. <laughs> still a great book. Still a great book. It's still a great book, yeah. And I, and I realize, you know, you mentioned before about uh, what interviewing is like. And here I am interviewing you. And I'm, I'm thinking back. I used to watch, you know, and I'd watch television and I'd see the interviewing being done. And, uh, the interviewer always looking down at notes as if the next question had to be asked in a certain formal right. way. And really innocently, I would say, that's strange. This is supposed to be a, in a sense, a conversation, a, uh, a creative act in and of itself. So I could never imagine having this whole set of questions. Uh, I even felt that way in doing job interviews. Some people, committees used to like to Ten questions that we ask all the, the same candidates. Sure. Is, is, you can't do it that way. You can't do it. Well, and that's a different scenario when you're asking somebody else's questions instead of your right. own. Of course. Um, and even news, uh, you know, there could be a producer or a news director who said, these are the questions we have to ask this person. And, and so you really have to stick to the script in those cases. Um, 
what I do often when I'm interviewing, say, a musician or an author, whether in person or on the phone, I have a set of index cards. So maybe I have 20 questions. They're on index cards. And it's especially on the phone, it's easier for me to rearrange them. So I'll like, you know, this question got answered. I throw it off the table. And then we, oh, we, we should jump over here. And so, and then I'll, I'll put something in a different order. And, and that seems to work pretty well. Okay. Like cool. one question per card. And, and as you're talking, you can, you can kind of alter the flow of, of your questions. So what did you learn about your creativity in writing this book and putting it all together? Yeah, that's a good question, Ted. I think, um, I think what I learned uh, is that even putting together a book of interviews is a creative act. This didn't exist before, and a lot of people are really responding well to it. Um, and what's most gratifying is when people say, uh, this book helped me fire up my own creativity. So, And I think every one of the people in this book would say, don't follow in my footsteps. So I would say, the book might not be a roadmap for how to follow somebody else on a creative path, but it is inspiring people to access their own creativity, and I really, I really find that gratifying. But um, back to your question, um, there's, there's a lot of material here that didn't, uh, didn't make it into the magazine story or the newspaper article, and until I went back and started reviewing the interviews, which I kept all of them, I had transcripts, but I also um, had the original audio, so I just... I spent some days reviewing all the audio, and I, I was just, there was a creative spark in that. I was like, wow, there's a lot of great material here. Because when you write a newspaper story and you have 800 words, and say, uh, you know, I interviewed Lucinda Williams for an hour, well, maybe 5% of the good stuff is going to get into the newspaper story. So there was all this material with Lucinda, with Amy Tan, with so many writers and artists that just never saw the light of day. And I think it was a creative act to say, this really needs to see the light of the world. Because a lot of the things that I'd been told by some of these musicians and writers and other artists uh, was really valuable material. And, and it, it, I didn't know initially if it would be a book. You know, it was out there, and I was like, oh, I have great stuff from this person, and, and Smokey had these great comments, and Merle Haggard, you know, what a great line. And, and um, you know, even some lesser-known people, like Greg Brown, the Iowa folk singer, had some incredible stuff I mean, that didn't make it um, and we, he's a he's a brilliant scholar, um, not in the academic sense, but he's a folk singer who, on his off days, will read people like James Joyce. And, and so we started talking about Finnegan's Wake, and he said, oh, that's just James Joyce speaking in tongues. But, you know, there's some great lines. Um, but on a deeper sense, there's more than great lines. So anyway, when I realized creativity was a theme here, I was like, this actually could be a book. And then I approached some publishers, and this publisher, Solace House, said, we want you to do this book. And so it was a collaborative pro pro project. And, um, and I'm really glad it was because I had been advised by some writers who have published their own work that the margins are better when you self-publish. But I kind of like the old model. I like being paid rather than paying to produce a book. And more than any of that, I like um, the collaboration of working. I had two great editors at, at Solace House, Larry Haberger and James O'Reilly, who diligently read the chapters, had great suggestions, and, and it was just so gratifying to have a sounding board when I wasn't sure where to go in a particular place. And so, in writing this book, it does also, when you're working with editors, it takes giving up a little bit of your ego 
Absolutely. In order to be able to come to the final product that we have in front of us. Absolutely. Here. Like there were certain things. Um, first of all, <coughs> excuse me, my editors were very receptive. And even the designer uh, let me make some suggestions that were accepted for the cover. Um, and, yeah, you, you work collaborating collaboratively. You can't expect to always get your way. But in the end, I think the book is better for it. Right, and that's, that, that can be very challenging for people who are creative because in owning your creativity, someone else is telling you, well, you got to do it this way or you should do it this right. way or perhaps you should think about doing your creativity in a little different way. Yeah, that's yeah. It's a challenge. Yeah, <laughs> is it a is a challenge. And uh, I think maybe younger people have a harder time with compromise, but... I'm in my 50s now. My editors are a few years older than me, and I think we all enjoy working together, and we're, we're less attached to, to having every single thing exactly the way we want it. We're, you know, we live in this uh, cookie-cutter culture mm -hmm. of America where everything has its form, the franchise system, the corporate system, etc. So, uh, in some ways, this book about creativity might be seen as a statement, you know, look at these people who we have in our culture mm -hmm. who are doing something different that's not part in many ways of that cookie-cutter cookie culture that we live in. Absolutely. I, I never really thought of it in terms of uh, creativity as potentially a subversive act. But it but really I is. Know, I know you. You, you yeah. You're good for subversion. <laughs> <laughs> well, I take that as a compliment. <laughs> I think we need a little more of that in our society right yeah. now. But, but not just being subversive, but being right. original, being yeah. uh, being someone who makes something, whether that's a song or a poem or something with your hands, uh, a clay pot, for example. It's just, I think, um, and I mentioned this in the book, I think we as humans... We want more than the basics. We want more than food and shelter and even love. We want to make our mark on the world. And we all have something. We all have something that is unique to us that we can offer the world. And it goes, I mean, it goes way, way back. You look, you know, the, the cave paintings 10,000 10, years ago or 5,000 or whatever they painted those caves. Uh, people wanted to make their mark. Uh, there's a writer in the book, Phil Cousineau, who talks about they find handprints on some of the cave walls. And he said, those are the first, you know, I was here. Graffiti <laughs> was like, yeah, I, you know, so-and-so was here. And that's that's a really poignant statement if you think about it. It's people want to be remembered. People want to say, I was here. Yes. And, of course, uh, unfortunately in America, we often measure the creativity by uh, dollars yeah. and success and visibility as opposed to the innate process it takes for that person to do the work that he or she might mm -hmm. do and bring the creativity to the world. Yeah. Well, you and I know that. Well, we've, we've both chosen careers that are not especially lucrative, <laughs> but are really gratifying in other ways. Right. And um, it's a choice. I mean, everybody has to make their choices, but no matter what you do for a living, so-called living, you can you can do other things in your life. And, and whether that's uh, just playing music with friends after work or, you know, whatever you do. I mean, raising a child is an, an inherently tremendously a creative act, um, as you know. And uh, 
so we all have ways to express our creativity in the world, and, and I just want to encourage that. You know, not to say this is what anybody should do, but to say we all have this spark within us, and let's fan that into a nice little flame. So if a, uh, an English uh, literature teacher at Casa Grande High School or Petaluma High invited you to come in to talk about creativity, mm-hmm. what would you tell them? What would you want to be telling them? I wouldn't tell them as much as ask them. I think I would say, what do you really love? What do you love to do? Do you, do you love to take pictures? Do you love to uh, fix a bicycle? I mean, you know, putting a bicycle together can be very creative. Whatever, I would just say, I would, I would really encourage kids to find their passion because I think right now we have this kind of reclusive attitude where we lean back and we look at our phones and that's an inherently uncreative thing just to be like looking at your, your phone to be on social media or whatever you're doing. Um, so I would, I would say ask yourself, you know, what do you love to do and how can you pursue that? And you know, how can your teachers support you? How can your coaches support you? How can your parents support you? But um, find what you love and find a way to do it. So that you know that sounds like the theme of a, a graduate a great graduation speech that's been given over and over again by creative people who get it up in front of the graduating class yeah. and encourage them to pursue their passions yeah. to find their passions yeah. and pursue it and uh, I hope that our classrooms and I trust that our classrooms are stimulating creativity in certain ways and uh, giving enough room for the students to find their creative mission to be mm-hmm. able to pursue it. And also to say, look, it's hard, you know. It's hard to write a song. It's hard to make a ceramic pot. And it's okay to be willing to work hard. I think there's an image of, like, oh, Smokey Robinson. He was just so incredibly talented. He just showed up one day and became a superstar. Well, no, every single person in this book worked hard to get where they are, um, and whether that's Jane Goodall sitting quietly for six months in the forests of, of Tanzania, or whether it's uh, Phil Cousineau writing, you know, till two in the morning every night because he just has a book that he wants to get out. It's 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 a craft. Craft takes work, and I think that's another thing that young people today maybe aren't as well prepared for is is the the realization that to achieve goals in life. You really have to apply yourself, and you have to work hard. And I don't mean to sound like a finger-wagging parent, but um, I think the emphasis could be the rewards of working hard are, are tremendous. And so if you're willing to put in the time, you can really find gratifying outcomes in the end. Yeah, and I think many, in our certainly in our world, many people see the final product of that work, mm-hmm. but they don't actually get the opportunity to appreciate the work that goes behind it to get to that point and how much it took to get there. And so I, uh, I appreciate that your book is trying to delve in with these people who are famous or not so famous who have achieved a lot in their life mm-hmm. to show the creative process that they use to be able to get them there. Right. And to go a little bit further afield, I think in terms of how our society is structured, you were alluding to this earlier, that we live in a very large corporate society. It's kind of a top-down where there's a very few people at the top and the millions of us below just receive, whether it's a book or, or a Taylor Swift record or whatever. Um, and I'm sure Taylor Swift is very talented, but 
I wouldn't want young people to think, well, I can't be Taylor Swift, so what's the point of trying to write a song? You know, I'm never going to sell a million records. I said, you know, we, we used to live in societies of maybe 100 people, 150 people, where we all participated. We all gave something back. It wasn't like the few givers at the top and the receivers at the bottom. And I think uh, I really want to encourage people to, to, to go out and make something. So I, I think you have uh, an opening. Uh, have a launch event? Yeah, you have yeah, a launch this Saturday, event. Yeah. This Saturday, November 9th. It's at Book Passage Bookstore in Puerto uh-huh. Madera. Uh, this Saturday at 4 p.m. Love uh-huh. to see anybody who wants to show up. And uh, we're, we're having another event for the book uh, here in Sonoma County at the Sebastopol Copperfields on January 30th. Okay. And hopefully seeing something in Petaluma as well. Right. So uh, one of the things I, I also have learned about you in the years I've known you and in your recent, because of the publication of this book, uh, is your love, obviously, for writing, mm-hmm. your love for books themselves. So what do you think about the digital revolution and relating to the bookstores out there? Because bookstores, certainly the national corporations have started to shrink, mm-hmm. and uh, many places don't have chains anymore of, of the bookstores of Borders and Barnes and & Noble right. and, and all of those that were there. So what's your take on that as you, as you uh, thrust a book uh, into the market? Uh, what, what do you think about all that? Well, I, I will say, like, when people say, where should I, I want to get your book, where should I get it? I always say, please support your local independent bookstore. And we're blessed, we're very blessed here with a number of them, you know, here in uh-huh. Sonoma County, Copperfields. I don't know if I'm allowed to mention names, but, you know, Book Passage, where I'll be speaking on Saturday, is a tremendous uh, support to local authors. And so I want people to get back. I want these places to exist. So I say, please support your local bookstore, whether it's buying a book or attending an event or whatever you do. Um, and I also find, I mean, I've read books digitally as well. <coughs> Excuse me. I also find that, number one, I like to underline my books, which I don't see. You know, I know you can highlight, but I like to make notes. I like to go back to them years later and say, oh, this is what I thought about this book at the time or highlight this segment. Um, so I like print books better. And I also um, somehow feel like I retain more when I read a book on paper than when I do digitally. I don't really read digitally that much. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just like the feel of a book in my hands. I and like the texture of it. there are many people who share that. There are many people yeah. who share that. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, I, you know, support your local stores. I just, uh, <laughs> I haven't really shared this on air with anybody before, but um, I was living in Sebastopol before uh, my wife and I, who was not quite my wife at that point, moved to Petaluma. In 2009, and I really loved Sebastopol. I had a great community of friends there, and I wasn't, I wasn't feeling so eager about coming to Petaluma. But I had a dream one night that I had actually moved to the moon. It wasn't Petaluma, but I'd moved to the moon. But there was a brew pub and a bookstore, so it was all going to be okay. <laughs> and that's, and that's it was like, well, you know what, Petaluma is going to be okay, and it's a great town. You know, we, it is we really enjoy town. being here. Yeah, there there is a lot going on in this our little town here. Certainly, in terms of culture, etc., all kinds of things. And yeah. it keeps getting better. It keeps getting more diverse and more culturally interesting. More diverse, and, yeah. yeah, yeah. So this uh, this, how would you apply this these themes of creativity? Without getting into the specifics of the political world today and mm-hmm. what's happening in, in Washington, how would you apply this to our, our world in terms of 
how we operate our society and how we use creativity. Do you have any thoughts on that? Or, and in your interviews, did you discover anything about about that issue? Uh, you know, I think I would like to let a couple of the artists in the book speak for themselves. Okay, Can I read a couple of excerpts? Sure, please. Because I really like this one. I had the opportunity to interview uh, Francis Ford Coppola, the, the great director of Apocalypse Now and, and the Godfather films. Um, and here's one from him. Uh, Very often films start rubbing the audience the wrong way if they're doing something a little different than what is the norm. So films like Apocalypse Now weren't exactly heralded, heralded as... As, oh, wow, this is terrific at the time. But those films stood the test of time, and over the years, little by little, sort of changed what movies were like. I always say that the things you do when you're young that get you fired are the same things that later get you Lifetime Achievement Awards. I love that quote. I read that from you. That's a great yeah, quote. Yeah. 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 And, um, and we were speaking about passion earlier. I, w- I want to read one from Melissa Etheridge, if that's okay. Um, she grew up in Kansas, and she told me in the book, um, I grew up in the Midwest where we didn't talk about our feelings at all, even though we were burning up from them. I started putting my passions and emotions into my music. I remember thinking in the beginning, oh, wow, this is so personal. Is this going to be too personal? And the more personal I got in the song, the more universal it was, the more that people all over could relate to it. I learned early on that this is the key, to be open enough, to be able to corral your emotions and fire and then put them in a song. Mm. So um, I like that one as well. And uh, let me maybe do one more. Okay, sure. Um, we have about another minute or oh, so. Okay, well, I'll do it really quick. Um, uh, I think this, this from Lyle Lovett about songwriting is really interesting. You think about everything you've ever learned when you're trying to write a song. You try to trick yourself into writing something good any way you can. You start with the lead and see what happens. Songs are slippery. Writing songs is the hardest part of everything. A song is a place where you can get away with telling a truth in an unvarnished way. So yeah. these are uh, these insights into people's creativity and the passions they have are really do serve as an inspiration for all of us. Yeah. I think I may have mentioned on this program. I know that biblically we have this whole notion that there was creativity either coming from the inside out or something stimulated from the outside, the creativity mm-hmm. inside. And I hope that people who take the opportunity to listen to the words that you've shared in your book uh, and hear them deeply will be stimulated to their own creativity. Yeah, and I think one last quick thing. If, if you can let yourself get quiet, whether that's a solo bike ride or meditation, I think that's really the best way to hear your inner voice. I want to thank you, Michael Shapiro, author of The Creative Spark, uh, for being with us in our studio today on Talking with Rabbi Ted, and wish you well. Thank you. And uh, your adventure with your new book out there in the world. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure to be here. We'll be returning in three minutes for our second segment. Thank you. 
Good morning and welcome back to the second segment of Talking with Rabbi Ted on KPCALP, Petaluma, California, here at our studios. Uh, for our second segment, uh, I'd like to welcome Basanti Jayaswal uh, as our guest for the second segment. It's good to see you here today. Good morning and thank you. Thank you, yes. So, Basanti, I've known for a few years and have a privilege of uh, a monthly uh, interfaith, intercultural group to share with her and other pieces of the world out here in Petaluma. Uh, my friend Jim, who's uh, working the boards here next to me, uh, apparently knows this person for a That's while. And uh, so uh, we're, you're in familiar territory. Mm -hmm. So don't be intimidated by these okay. microphones and earphones. Yeah. You're just talking to us, right? Sure. It's okay. It's good. So I, I like to start out with uh, a little bit telling me a little bit about your background mm -hmm. and uh, a bit of your resume of life, but and then we'll start talking about some of the things you've been engaged in. Okay, so I'm a composite person. You are with several chapters to my life. Uh -huh. um, I left India in 1966. I was invited to be part of a collaborative parasitology work at the University of Oklahoma. And then from there, I moved to Dallas, where I got married, and life changed then. Had the kids and stuff, and uh, wasn't uh, worked as a uh, research librarian because I didn't want to cut any more animals out for what I was doing, you know. And then it was family, and then we moved to New Jersey, and then to Los Angeles, the longest I have lived is in Los Angeles. And then I miss my culture so much, so I dropped my science background, went back to my parents and my other background, which is performing arts. Mm -hmm. So I had an academy of arts in Los Angeles, and we had lots and lots of students, and we took them to India for tours, and <clears throat> they did a marvelous job. And then as that was dwindling, I, I decided I'll go and get some edu uh, units in child education because I missed being with kids. So I had heritage schools, six of them for Indian kids, and then worked as an enrichment uh, counselor sort of uh, in the elementary schools in West L.A. So that's my L.A. chapter. And then with the passing of my husband, I moved to Sonoma County uh, to be closer to my younger son. And it's a different life now. It is. And how long have you been here? Uh, this is my 10th year. 10th year? Yes. 10th okay, year. So, so uh, Jim could not have known you for 12 years. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Unless yeah. in some other way he, yeah. that, that knowledge is possible. 
All right. Well, it's great. And I, I know you've done, um, you know, I know you most uh, in parts of your spiritual journeys and um, looking at, the, you mentioned you're a composite person mm-hmm. uh, and that your life has had these different chapters. Mm-hmm. But don't you think these chapters all come together at this stage? Uh, there's a thread that goes through all the chapters, but the actual pages haven't turned and I don't tend to go back. Okay. You know, so. Okay. What is that thread? Uh, it's the love of the divine. Ah, uh-huh. And what is your understanding of that? Right now, the understanding has changed since before because I was more into the personal aspect of God. But now it's a presence. Uh-huh. But I still can relate to the personal. But deep inside of me, it's the presence. And so that has changed the, over the years. Uh-huh. So in, in the Indian traditions from which you come, mm-hmm. what, what is that presence of the divine like? Is that, is that the one you're relying upon now, or is it some uh, step forward from it? But let's go yeah. back to that one first. What, what is the root uh, you know, in Hinduism? I was, was it Hinduism of which you were a yeah, part? Yes, yeah. I was. Yeah, so, and I still am. Right. So, mm-hmm. You would identify if somebody asked you? Would yeah, you I'll say I'm a Hindu. Right. Okay. I'll say so, I'm a Hindu with a difference, so. Yeah, Hindu with a difference. <laughs> and that's great. Yeah. Okay. So, it, could you give us some basics of, well, of the Hinduism? Gr- growing up, I've been exposed to both the ritualistic aspect uh, of Hinduism and also the philosophy. When you get into the philosophy, then you go more into the presence. Uh-huh. And uh, you don't drop the other one, but in your personal life, you're, you don't do as much as uh, you, you would do if you were still with, the, say, the concept of God with attributes, then you yeah. would have the rituals and stuff like that. But when we, we move from uh, the concept of the divine into a presence and not necessarily attributes, then you don't do as much of the rituals. Could you clarify that notion of God with attributes? What you mean by what do you mean by attributes? That means God is all loving, compassionate, okay. and all of that. So we try to put human traits onto God, uh-huh. you know, and uh, and and then you come to another level. When then uh, in India, for instance, they identify with different characters in the scriptures, and they try to uh, identify as that being God. Mm. And that's okay for those who feel that way. I'm okay with that. But I, I know it's much more than that and goes beyond that. So does that make sense? Well, it's beginning to make sense. Yeah. I, mean, I know it makes sense for you. Mm-hmm. And I'm try- I would like our listening audience to yeah. be able to get a, a sense of uh, what Hinduism is about. Just like I have the opportunity to interview yeah. people from my tradition, from the Christian tradition. Uh-huh. So... So, if you were to go to India today, uh-huh. and uh, would you know, like people would say, America is majority Christian. So, yes. I assume that India is yeah. majority Hindu. Majority Hindu, mm-hmm. right? And there are Hindu temples, yes, uh, every, yeah. everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. And rituals, right? Icons, yes, yes. A lot of a lot of yeah. uh, Hindu icons, right, uh, right, right. And from the from these traditions, you have derived your spiritual life uh-huh. and the the underpinnings. So, what would you say are the key tenets of the philosophy that you're talking about? See, um, my take on it would be more that um, 
I can train people <clears throat> what they have to do with regard to icons and temples. But I don't go to temples anymore. Right. Um, because I can't, uh, it, I can't stand it anymore. Okay. That's the truth. So, but if, if somebody's at the level of temples and they want to worship, I've been trained to be able to teach them. So, uh, that still continues in India. Majority of the people are into temples and rituals, but there's a segment who are in monasteries. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they are more into the ta- transcendental aspect of the divine. And that is done through studying the scriptures? Yes, studying the and scriptures and a personal uh, transformation. Okay. Yeah. And so, you know, obviously within the Jewish community, I, people would say, I don't go to temple anymore and yeah. I don't do the ritual. Many people, right. but I'm still a Jew and yeah. I follow this or the values mm-hmm. of Judaism have yeah. taught me are part of my life, etc., mm-hmm. etc. Et so I... Could we identify any of the philosophies of the pieces of the philosophy in Hinduism that still resonate for you in terms of the values and how people live their lives? Yes. Okay. Yes, yes, so could it, you help me with that? Well, you know, it's common, to, I think, throughout the world, like, you know, speaking the truth uh-huh. and not being dishonest. And one of the most important ones that we have is a human being goes through certain stages in life. Uh-huh. And that's something most of us hold on to. Beginning of your life, you are a student and should be a celibate. When you get married, then you have the obligation to society. And when you become a grandfather or a grandmother, then you have to pull away mm-hmm. and be more into spiritual uh, uh, you know, pursuits. And then the last one, which most, most of us don't do, is when you become a recluse. You know, uh-huh. and so those things still hold good for me. And all the um, training I have with my ethics and everything is from my parents, and that's part of the uh, Hinduism, okay. and which I think is common to the world. So when you look at American culture, American society, where uh, being single, uh, not married, you know, yeah. is you, know, you you put on the family and then yeah, the, this so is but being single is a for many people in American society, a value that they hold on to. They right. say it's okay. Yeah. How does that... Does that, that seems do you look like askance at that? Or no, you... no, because that's the choice that they have made. Uh-huh. But what would be askance would be, not anymore because I've learned to accept a lot, <laughs> is when you are single and you're not married, but you still have so many affairs. Uh-huh. That, that would... Would be very hard. I've learned to say, okay, that's none of my business. But when I first came to this country, it was hard Mm -hmm. to accept that. Or it's hard to accept uh, the slight lack of disobedience that we see in children towards parents. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, The lack of respect, you know. And and especially when they turn 18, it's like, boom, they can do whatever they want. All of that was in the beginning when I was here. That all shows my Hindu background, right. and that it was hard to accept that. But yeah. many many immigrant groups who have come to this country uh-huh. and seen these kinds of changes, uh, yeah. the Asian countries. It's, I mean, people yeah. people do look at it askance and are mm-hmm. trying to figure out how to maintain their own cultures and how to maintain their own values mm-hmm. in, in the face of this, mm-hmm. knowing that their children and grandchildren are going to grow up more. 
American than they are from their original right. cultures. And right. that's, that's a challenge. Mm-hmm. What's the Indian community like in Petaluma? Is, uh, is there a, uh, a significant Since difference? I came to Petaluma, I have, not, I have not been very involved with the Indian community, okay. but when I was in Santa Rosa, I was. Uh-huh. And there's a large number of them, but I would call them the newer type of Indians. Uh-huh. So if you could put, say, in a room, people who moved to this country in the 60s, like I did, and people who have moved since the 90s, put us all in a room. Within 10 minutes, we'll all be like this, one, one group on one end and one group on the other end, because we, are not, we don't have a lot in common. Mm. But that might actually happen if you get uh, baby boomers yeah. in the room yeah. with uh, Generation Xers, yeah. and that the, the same right. split might take place. Part of it is age, part of it is culture, mm-hmm. uh, etc. So... Um, are you worried about the future of Indian identity in the, in America, or is that is that just happens to be who you are and where you came from, but that these cultural identities are not really significant either for you or in general well, let's people's go, lives? Let's go for the Indian community. As I see them, many of them are strong Indians in the sense of they tend to just associate with their own people. Uh-huh. So this is how they stay. Right. Indians stay Hindus, and there's a s- small segment that doesn't do it, but the bigger segment still maintains that. So I'm not worried about okay. uh, their identity. As far as my identity is concerned, well, I happen to be a Hindu. You happen to be a Hindu, right? Yeah. But you've dabbled in other yeah. areas of yes, spirituality. Yes, so that, that's something I really would like you to know is from since I was a child, I've always been interested in other religions, other faiths. The common thing is their way of expressing love for God. That's mm-hmm. how it started. And I went to Catholic schools, Catholic colleges, so, and I would escape into the, during lunchtime to the chapel just to hear the nuns sing. So this is how I was thinking about I had to put all of, all of that in my head this morning. It's like I'm a free-flying bird, uh-huh. you know, having been raised in a nest of Hinduism, let's say, but I'm a free-flying bird. And for a bird to be able to fly, I would say we has the two wings. One wing is of devotion, which in India we call bhakti yoga. The yoga of bhakti is devotion. And the other one is wisdom, knowledge, which we call jnana yoga. So you need these two wings. And then you have to have the tail is music, chants, art, regardless of any religion, you know, that plays an important role. And my little feet will be selfless actions, which is karma yoga. You continue to do that because you have to deal with people, you deal with this world, and you do it as as much as you can selflessly. So that's karma yoga. And my head is into mysticism. Ah. Can't be without it. Uh-huh. Can't be without it. Can't be without mysticism. No. Any particular stream of mysticism? All kinds. Mo- right now in my life, I'm mostly into Turkish mysticism because I'm seeing the songs and everything. Uh-huh. But gone beyond that Greek Orthodox, it doesn't matter which religion. I love all the Kabbalists. Uh-huh. Okay. That's Jewish mysticism. Yes. Yes. And I have to say a few words about that. Please. Because for a Hindu, it's interesting, I'm thinking. Uh, my husband was very, very kind. He knew he was into all of this. And he said, oh, there's a Kabbalah Center in Cover City. Let's go for the introduction since you're interested. So we went. And I liked it. So he said, why don't you go for their classes? 
I said, it's all at night and it's in an area which I'm scared to go by myself. I called them up and they said, oh, we have a class morning on Wednesdays. I think Wednesdays or Thursdays. Boom, I started going. Tell you, I have never experienced anything like that, that kind of instruction. Because I previous instructions have all been in Hinduism. You know, where somebody's on the podium and they're talking to you, not with you. Rabbi Chaim Sol- Solomon was the other way. He would speak maybe one-fourth of the time, but he's always engaging us in all the troops. And there's some interesting experiences I've had while going through the Zohar, which I don't want to share now. And I found that all that he was teaching, I sort of knew deep inside. He just reinforced what was already inside. And... I couldn't have gone through my husband's illness if I didn't have the knowledge of the Kabbalah and be able to go back to it. Okay, so the, the question, particularly for those out there yeah. listening to us, what, what is mysticism? What does that mean? I'll give you... What does it mean to study it? What is it? What, what is this mysticism piece? Okay, how about I give you a kind of a um, visualization. Let's imagine there's an airfield. And we have all these planes rumbling because they're getting ready to take off. Uh-huh. And you have on them names, uh, Judaism, Christianity, with all these varieties, and Hinduism, Buddhism, and whatever. And they're all wanting to take off, but only one takes off. And that has no name. And that's mysticism. Mm-hmm. Okay. So mysticism is a... Um, in some ways, undefinable. Yeah. But in other ways, it's a universal yes. understanding mm-hmm. of a relationship, perhaps with God, mm-hmm. that supersedes all of these other yeah. traditions, yeah. etc. So true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And and that that experience for you, and particularly in the Kabbalah Center, was mm-hmm. uh, a healing source for you during your husband's illnesses. Is that yeah, uh, not, not the mysticism. From the Kabbalah, it was practical tips to handling my own mind. That's mm-hmm. what I got most out of it. Later on, as I read books, I got mysticism was part of it, but mysticism has been there even before the Kabbalah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Could you, I mean, could you give an example of something that, a specific tip that you a way you you decided to think to try to help you deal with what was happening in your life? Um, and if you can't... What, okay, yeah, yeah okay. one thing is the martyr syndrome. The what? The martyr syndrome. Okay. Uh, I, want, I needed to shift away from myself. And uh, you know, not say, oh, look, this is happening to me. My husband is ill. I'm going to be losing him. So I needed to get away from that it's happening to me and that I am the victim type of thing and concentrate, it, concentrate and when I pray I would say, what is it, Lord, that you want me to do? Mm-hmm. What is it expected out of me? And so shifting away from yourself was, was one of the important things for me. I remember the rabbi, we had a one session when uh, we could have a one-on-one with the rabbi and I remember him asking if you have any particular concern and I said, my husband's uh, down with cancer. And he said, I'm not quoting him exactly, remember he has the cancer, not you. Mm-hmm. In other words, don't go down with him. Be there for him. Right. And be a source of strength for him. So that's just one among the many. But I use, every now and then I go back to the notes. 
uh-huh. you know, how to use when you're dealing with human beings, don't, uh, if you want to go forward, like in a car, you have to be proactive. Uh, most Indians don't like to, uh, what's the word, uh, they don't like conflicts and they'll keep quiet and not really uh, engage, which, which means you're in neuter, he said. And if you do something negative and handle it badly, then you're going uh, in reverse. But if you're proactive, move away from the focus, move away from yourself, then you'll move forward. And it's always been uh, worked for me. And the other interesting one is every time I fall or have a think of what was the last thought you had before. I don't care other people, but it works for me. It was either anger or frustration. Right. So that. The realization that our thoughts and feelings have a profound effect on how we meet the world yeah, and how we yes, deal with the exactly. world. Yeah. So you were able to use the mystical traditions, in this particular case, mm-hmm. Kabbalah, mm-hmm. Uh, as a healing form for yourself to, yes, to gather yes. wisdom. Mm-hmm. So Kabbalah was, the mystical tradition was a, the experience of the mystical tradition mm-hmm. was yeah. a source of wisdom for yeah. you to help you cope with the various changes yeah. that were happening in your life. Yeah. Yeah. And it reveals myself, too. Like, there are some quotations by Baal Shem Tov. Uh-huh. I thought, oh, my gosh, that's the truth. So you know? Baal Shem Tov was uh, the uh, founder of what's called the Hasidic movement in Judaism, mm-hmm. which was a highly mystical tradition. Mm-hmm. And Baal Shem Tov means the master of a good name. Yeah. And uh, he... Um, had very insightful teachings yeah. to his followers right. about living life yeah. in this world uh, and wanting us to live life with a sense of joy, mm-hmm. with a sense of joy, mm-hmm. even in spite of the things that right. are happening in the world around us. So the one more I'd like to share, I shift from there, is to, I don't call Sufism because that's kind of a cool thing now to say, I'm a Sufi, I'm not a Sufi. I'm into uh, Turkish mysticism. In that, there is a difference in the attitude with the mystics when they talk, say Allah, as opposed to Huck. Huck is truth, and it goes above. And so I've had to, uh, when I write the translations and I talk to my uh, Turkish friends, I would not argue with them. I would like them to see that people were, uh, mystics were persecuted because they identified with the truth, which which they called Huck. Mm. You know, so that's part of mysticism. How do you think about the notion of truth that's thrown around all the time in our world? This, I think this was one topic that did come up with uh, in one of the interfaith sessions. Yes, and then I remember it. talking to Matthew afterwards. Uh-huh. There is such a thing as a personal truth, I think. And that truth is sort of you have to discover who you are. And there's a beautiful Turkish song that says, I go round and then round and then round. The only thing I'm asking of you is, what's my personal truth? And as opposed to the truth yeah. of everybody uh-huh. else. Uh-huh. Yeah, interestingly, I was uh, teaching a class just last night, uh, and the notion uh, of truth came up in looking at some of the uh, rabbinic commentaries on some of the parts of the Torah mm-hmm. that if people get stuck on the notion of truth, that peace is impossible in the world. Mm-hmm. Because the notion of truth then divides 
people into people accepting this or right. not accepting this, or mm. this is the truth or that's the truth. Mm. So the, the, the phrase personal truth mm-hmm. gives a little bit easier twist on this mm. because that your truth is you're not waiting for the whole world mm. to accept your truth right. and to validate right. who you are. Yes. So it takes a pretty strong ego and person to be able to say this is my personal truth, but I can't really expect That's right. the whole world to, That's right. to, uh, mm-hmm. to be that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you get back to India at all? Uh, I go every two years. Uh-huh. I do. So what's it feel like to go back? As, you know, after all, you know, over these years, and I'll be, I assume there are changes in Indian society, just like there are changes in America yes. over the years. What's, yeah. it, what's it like? Um, some of it is good. People are more confident about themselves, uh-huh. you know, because I think they're economically much better too, you know. But uh, the value systems have changed, and that's not very nice. Yeah, you know, so the Western, fa- a little more Western yeah. values of materialism and corporate yes, structures yes, and stuff. Like yes, that. that's that's creeping in um, very fast, very fast, and that I become very sad. But when I go to the villages, I'm happy because the villages are pretty much the same. Uh-huh. The villages are pretty much pretty the same. Pretty much the, the same. Town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you, do you do you feel any spiritual connection when you go there? Is there a uh, is it feeling I'm going home? What's home mean for you? Home is where I am right now. I, I you know, I agree with you. I yeah. Know. I agree with you on mm-hmm. that. I, I do. Um, oh, I just got this note. She's a great cook. <laughs> <laughs> so I've heard this before, of course, about you being a, uh, a great cook. And mm-hmm. we have about a minute and a half or so yeah. left. So... What is being a great cook is one thing, but it's since I I recognize you as such a spiritual person and um, that this whole sense of divine dominates your life in many ways. Mm-hmm. How does does that connect to your cooking? Culin- yes, culinary? Yeah. Uh, the cooking is a spiritual act. Oh yeah, yeah. And Maybe. I don't I don't talk. What's your address? We'll all be over there tomorrow. Yeah. Night. Yeah. Um, I don't talk. I don't pick up the t- telephone when I'm cooking. Uh-huh. And if I'm, if it's an Ilahi night, uh-huh. which is when I sing the Turkish Ilahis, from when I, after a shower, I come down to cook, cut the vegetables, it's la ilahe illa la la, till I finish. Uh-huh. And I do that for, and if it's a very Indian kind of thing, then I would be chanting on Ganga, because Ganga is a purifier. So I'm, so I'm always chanting when I'm cooking. And I love to cook, I love to experiment, and most of all, I like to feed people. Uh, I really do. Uh, so if some of the rituals in the temples of India could be turned into cooking and taking care of the rampant poverty yeah. that they have there, mm-hmm. then that would feel a, a greater mission probably yes. for you. Yes, it would. To do that. Yes, yes, it would. Okay, so now we know uh, Jim and I will be over later uh, <laughs> for some dinner. It's good. Well, Vasanti, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the radio this morning. It's really been uh, enlightening for me to learn about the culture and a little bit more about you, which I learn every time we get together for our once-a-month group. And uh, wish you well, and thank you very much for agreeing to come here. Thank you, both of you, and thank you, Petaluma, for keeping me here.
You are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted on KPCALP, Petaluma, California. We'll be back in two weeks.